I hope you find that God wants to do in your heart that will give you the reasons to hold on. And so David's going to bring up the... I don't have my pad yet, so I can't start with the, with the uh, message yet. Here, here he comes. But one of the things that you're going to find is that there are a lot of things that will keep you off of your faith. And this week in particular for me, I... Uh, I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I just think I've, I've got to just really rely on Christ. Thank you. Because there are some traumatic stories this week that really caught me meditating in ways that I thought, gosh, if that were to happen to me, uh, would I hold on? Uh, I've never been in a house fire. I've never had my house robbed. I haven't been in positions where I've been thrown up against the loss of, of something tragic uh, like the 14 fires that are going on in California. I know that three people have lost their lives to some of the fires recently out there, but, but to think about losing everything. Uh, if I were Satan, I would say, what can I do to destroy your faith? If it's not a fire, the second thing, the second story that I heard was just really traumatic was having to live as a grandfather who lost the granddaughter, the 18-month-old who fell to her death of 11 stories, 11 stories off of that uh, Royal Caribbean cruise liner. He set her up on a window and he either tripped, leaned back or something, but she fell out to her death. And I think, how on earth could you live with the death of a child like that? What would, what would it take to destroy your faith? Well, if you were back in the New Testament time, you find your friend Stephen being stoned, murdered unjustly. This was not a new thing. They had done the same thing to John the Baptist by beheading him. There was real evil going on in the world. And yet, when you think about murder and losing loved ones, what would it take? But let me guarantee you that Satan would do anything to destroy your faith. So how would, it, how would a Christian hold on to that gospel plow when you know your world is being split? When your world is being split? Well, trauma happens when your world is shaken to the core and your basic assumptions about the world are just shattered. If you've been depressed, if you've been stressed out, there are things that will take your faith. But there's something about this trauma, something about suffering that God uses to teach us about our world, what we're really trusting in. And so the assumptive world what is known in some counseling circles, is what you think the world is will be shattered by all kinds of situations that you run across. And so the assumptive world is the only world we know, and it includes everything we know about the world and about ourselves. If you've never had that shaken, uh, go overseas as a missionary. When Sandy and I were in Japan, we thought life here isn't the same as life there. And yet you can find a whole new systems of life and assumptions, cultural worlds 
that interpret life and the future and the present or the past with a certain cultural bias. There's, there's an assumption going on and a commitment to those assumptions where we place our confidence and our faith. One way of understanding, one way of understanding our world is understanding the relationships of, of how people come through for us or how they don't. And when those assumptions are broken and relationships are cracked at the core, you really lose something of the soul. Trauma is betrayal of our most fundamental assumptions about the world. And yet you get into uh, the psychotherapist like Irvin Yalom, a man who's a, a brilliant, brilliant psychotherapist. He's Jewish, but he talks about an existential fear, a dread that comes over. When trauma hits, we lose not only the meaning of our assumptions, but we lose the hope. We lose the hope that no longer can we go on with the cracked world that we used to live in. And yet daily, daily, as Jesus said, the world will have tribulations that you have to deal with. Jesus said it this way, brother will betray brother to death, and a father the child, and children will rebel against their parents, and they have them put to death. There's things that are happening in the world that were happening back in the New Testament time during Stephen's, Stephen's time and uh, Acts 6. The assumptions that we make, the fundamental rock bed beliefs that we hold on to, we say that we hold these beliefs to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We hold certain beliefs, but there are certain assumptions that hold us that carry us through those hard times. And yet, when you think about these assumptions, what life is supposed to be, oftentimes, as Merton said, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong, wrong wall. Oh, that they were wise, Moses wrote that they would discern this, that they could see their latter end. If we only understood our assumptions and, and what we do really believe, to take a look at that, we would come into situations where we would have to face the fact that we love the world. When John says, do not love the world or all that's in it, for if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. So then, these assumptions about what the world has to offer. We have a loyalty to follow what the world has taught us that life is all about. God isn't going to meet your needs, therefore you turn to the world. And if the world isn't going to meet your needs, you're going to turn to your family. If your family doesn't meet your needs, you're going to rely on your own self. If you don't meet your needs, who are you going to beat up? It turns into a, a, a real chaotic tension of contempt and anger and hatred. Nobody's going to do for me what I expect life to do for me. And yet I try God and he doesn't work. And therefore, we have misplaced loyalties. We expect things to happen when we do certain things. And when they don't happen, we get disappointed and our fundamental assumptions are tested every day. Well, that's what's going on 2,000 years ago. It's been going on ever since. 
But as you get back into the assumptions that the people were making, the Pharisees thought that if we can just get rid of this Jesus fellow, we'll get back to normal. And yet they wanted to, they felt like they had the right to, assume they had the right to, lay down the law. And they wanted the religious system to be intact and keep control. Simon Magus in chapter 8, we'll get into the cults, uh, where he was trying to manipulate the spirit world in his understanding of how do you get the world to work. There are groups out there today who think there are certain things I can do to cast a spell or use some crystals or control the energy sources. I can do something to improve my world. And there was a man watching named Saul who thought, nope, there's a way to do things and that is not the way these Christians are doing it. Therefore, I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to get the political right to overthrow and to, to destroy. You see, we live in a world where the flesh is opposed to the spirit and the spirit is opposed to the flesh. You live in a world of tension. And that tension is not going to go away. So the question is, how can you hold on to a world that's going to let you go? Well... When you come to the point of watching your friend die for Christ, watching Stephen being martyred for Christ, you think Satan say, if I get rid of these guys, then I'll, I'll get rid of Christianity. But just the opposite took place. And the reason why is because there's something in the book of Acts I want to underline for you, is that God is doing a work there to break up and to destroy, and to put the cracks in the old traditional systems of the Pharisees, of the magicians, of the guys like uh, Paul who are committed to his own belief system. And it's a divine interruption. God interferes. God disturbs. God interrupts so that our assumptions about life, he would challenge every step of the way by saying, that is not life. And so all the way through the New Testament, you'll find Jesus saying, in a number of ways, there's a way that you think about life that I don't think about life that way. And as Garland said, his ways are far beyond what we think. And because we don't know God that well, we tend to rely on our own assumptions. And although they, although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And so the question that, that you come, into, uh, come to the table with is, well, if this is the way I think life is, and here's what Jesus says life is, I'm caught. But the question is, I don't want to follow Christ the Pharisees rejected Christ because they thought he might be a, a cult, a radical, misleading people. But the question I would say to you and to me is the same question that they had to answer to people. Why follow Jesus? Why follow Jesus? Why would you follow this guy when, when we've got trying to get rid of all of this group? Stephen, uh, any, anything that's Christian, we don't want to be part of that. And you have to answer that question. What's, 
where does Jesus fit into the basic assumption? Why, why should we follow him? Why should we reject him? These are all fundamental assumptions. And let me give you the answer. Because if something's coming up in the book of Acts, I want you to get and enjoy. Jesus does not want your religion. Jesus does not want your faith. Jesus does not want your tithes. Jesus does not want your performance. Jesus does not want what you do. He wants you. Not things that you have. He wants you. And yet, we tend to make these assumptions. We have these theological questions answered with our own understanding. And so, in Hosea 6, 1 and following, get this passage. Hosea was told by God, go marry this prostitute. And the story is great. If you haven't read Hosea, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. This prostitute would, would introduce to Hosea a whole new thinking of marriage that wasn't what Hosea wanted. But God was doing a work in Hosea's life that says, it's not about your marriage. I want your marriage to reflect something that far greater than your marriage. It's far beyond you, Hosea. Well, she was faithless. She had an affair. She had a number of affairs. She had kids out of the affairs. And that halfway through the book, problems everywhere, they decide, okay, we've messed up. Let's go back to the Lord. Now, notice what he says in Hosea 6, 1. This is the theology. This is the assumptions that these people are making regarding God. And so he says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. Good words. He has wounded us, yes, but he will bandage, bandage us. He will revive us up revive us after two days and he will raise us up on the third day so that we may live before him so let us know let us press on to know the lord his going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain like the spring rain watering the earth anything wrong with that theology it's great theology They've got the right answers. They've got the right head knowledge, as it were. You've got the resurrection there. You've got healing there. You've got blessing there. You've got everything that God's got for us. We want to follow God. That's good thinking, right? Now, if you were God and you were to hear somebody pray that prayer to you, what would be your response? You see... On the surface level, we, we will give God our religion. We will give God our good theology. But God isn't interested in our theology. Notice God's response to those assumptions. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's not the response. What shall I do with you, Judah? You don't get it. You've got the right knowledge, but you've got the wrong heart for your loyalty, for your love, is like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that comes, and it's, it's rich when you walk out and your feet get wet. 
But by 10 o'clock, it's gone. Burned off. Jesus does not want your religion. He does not want your sacrifice. He wants your heart loyalty. And nothing else will satisfy Christ until he gets your heart. He wants your loyalty. And yet we've got misplaced loyalties all over. Because once you trust your tradition like the Pharisees, once you trust your magic like Simon the Magus did, uh, once you trust your convictions like Paul did, you don't surrender your heart. And yet Jesus does not want your surrender. He wants you. Now that's a little tricky. But let me go back into this. Uh, Jesus does not want you to read your Bible. Huh? Doesn't that sound crazy? Uh, Jesus does not want you to just know your Bible. And yet, if you're a Christian in America today, a lot of Christians don't read the Bible. And yet, they think, if I read the Bible, if I read the Bible, the Bible is important. He doesn't want you to know your Bible. He wants you to know Him. And therefore, he would say to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. You're so committed to this theological study of God, but you're unwilling to come to me. Their assumption was, I can be religious and I can be spiritual here, but I don't have to be involved in a relationship with Christ. And therefore, anything that Christ does or those associated with Christ, get rid of them. But Jesus... When we talk to people, sometimes we'll get into theological arguments about the end times or about social issues. But we don't get into issues about Christ himself. So when talking with people, we need to think, first of all, we're not talking about the Bible. We're not talking about the Revelation. We're talking about who claimed to be God. We don't talk about that because that's not where our loyalty lies. Our loyalty lies in our theological systems or our denominational beliefs. But here's the news. Jesus is not the Bible. It's kind of simple. But we don't want to worship the Bible. We don't want to know the Bible. We want to know the author of the Bible. And yet, Jesus in the beginning, before there was a Bible, he was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Jesus, all, through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. But in him is life. Not in the Bible. The Bible is not life. Jesus is life. Well, that's such a subtle difference that you can get into a religious system or a religious non-system or non-system, whatever, secular system, and you won't have life. But Jesus is what the Bible is all about. It's what the law and the prophets indicated. They point towards Christ. They bow down to Christ. And they were what they were trying to say was about the Messiah. But they didn't say it all that well because you get caught up in everything else. They couldn't fully articulate it. The law, the law that the Pharisees assumed to be their fundamental assumption that we do the Torah. We are people of the Torah. We are people of the law. And yet, 
Jesus said the law was given through Moses, but Moses did not bring truth, and Moses did not bring grace. Those were realized in Christ Jesus. And therefore, God could not say all that he wanted to say in the form of a law book. He had to do it in the person of his son. And so to make it clear, Jesus is the message. Jesus is what God has to say to us about our assumptions. It's not about an assumption. It's about the person of Christ and our affiliation and our loyalty to him. Now, when Jesus would go into the New Testament, he says, do not think that I came to abolish that law or abolish the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. They were pointed to me. But Moses represents the law, the Pentateuch, the whole history. This is the tradition. And Elijah represents the prophets. Now get this shift, because this shift is important. The assumption is that the old witness of the Old Testament law and the prophets are going to shift over to a new kingdom assumption where Christ rules as king. The old witness is to yield to the new witness in Christ. Peter didn't get that. Peter didn't get that. Could you remember on the old, in the uh, story of the Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ was on the top of the mountain, and here comes Moses, and here comes Elijah, and there's Christ, Peter says, this is the time we want to build three altars. One for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. This is good. We get And No, no. This is a handover. Moses and Elijah are saying to Jesus, you're going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And therefore, the Old Testament is a shifting, turning to Christ, and it's elevating Christ in the New Testament because he has the project of salvation. He has the project of redemption. And the Spirit is going to do that work of, of restoration we talked about. And when Jesus had mentioned those things, Peter and the guys saw the glory, and they heard, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. And God two times, and only two times, audibly spoke through the universe at the birth of Christ and on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. And Moses was gone. And Elijah was gone. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. And so get the idea that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament. They're not on equal footing. There's a superiority to Moses, a superiority to the law, superiority to the sacrifice, a superiority to having a high priest who died for us when the prophet couldn't and the lawgiver couldn't. Jesus is the assumption, the rock on which we build our faith. And I think that's why when Jesus was saying, when you put your hand to that gospel plow, don't look back. This isn't about just distraction that you're going to have crooked furrows 
for the field. It's not about, well, you're not going to lose your salvation. I think he said, when you make this commitment to come to the gospel and you focus forward on me, you don't look back to the Old Testament. You don't look back to the law. You don't look back to the prophets. You don't look back to, you look forward to Christ. And I think that's what this is about. Well, you may hear people say, well, the Old Testament says, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's about the law. Well, yeah, it is. And when they brought the prostitute to Jesus and they tested Jesus, they said, you know, the Old Testament says he, she should be stoned. You didn't see Jesus say, okay, that's what the Bible says. God said it, I believe it, go get the stones. And yet, they didn't. Over and over again, when Jesus would confront the, the assumption, we've got to do it the Old Testament way. When John and James, uh, when John and uh, the, sons of Ant, the sons of Thunder went through Samaria, they wouldn't let them pass through. They said, let us call down fire on these Samaritans and let us burn them up. And Jesus said, well, okay, let's see. Let's uh, see how that works. He said, what manner of men are you? This is not the New Testament spirit that I'm bringing. And therefore, I say to you, and Jesus would say over and over and over and over and over, truly, 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 truly. And he would speak as one having authority because he was the authority. And he would speak and they would follow. When Jesus would speak, he would speak with authority far above the Old Testament and say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love your enemies as I have loved you. What I want you to hear is this. In the book of Acts, you have introduced to us in the church a whole new wave of the Holy Spirit working in the church to rethink our assumptions that our loyalties are not just based on what we think. It's based on who he is and what he's doing. And therefore, as we get into this understanding, understand that Jesus Christ is worthy of dying for. He's the superior one by which Stephen said, I'm going to look to Jesus even if they stone me because my life is in his hands and I surrender totally to him. You see, what's going on here is a shaking of the foundations and a building of another assumption, of not a, a, a misapplied loyalty or misdirected or misguided loyalty. It's going to be an assurance that you are his. And that's all you need. These men and women of the New Testament understood that. Saul didn't until he saw Stephen die. And that's when Saul said, he has a different spirit than I do. It's this confrontation, it's this disruption that God is out to do something brand new in the church. And what he did then is what he's doing today. And therefore, I'm calling you, church, 
to lift up your eyes to see that the Spirit of God that was working in the New Testament is the same Spirit working in Chesterland Baptist today. And therefore, I invite you to let go of those misapplied, misguided, misdirected loyalties and grab onto that plow and don't let go of Christ. That's our calling. And we get that from our brother Stephen. Let me pray. Father, take these words, take them deep in our hearts so that our heart would hold on to you, that we would not be misled or misdirected by the world. So meet with us now. Do your work as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.